This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, I am just thrilled about our guest and cannot wait to talk with him about one of my favorite historical episodes. He's an historian of religion at Vanderbilt University and a leading expert on the history of the Renaissance, the Reformation, the role of the Bible in the early modern period. He's the incredible David Price. And today we're going to talk about one of the most underratedly interesting figures in the history of biblical studies and the history of Judaism and Christianity, a man by the name of Johannes Reichlin. But first, uh, let's set this thing up. Okay, so we've been talking lately about the book of Deuteronomy, and we're now up to that stretch, beginning near the end of chapter 11, in which Moses starts to get down to the business of advising the Israelites how they should behave in practice when they reach the promised land. And the major theme of at least the next two chapters is you, the Israelites, must be fundamentally different from the other nations you'll encounter. They worship idols, you shouldn't. They practice child sacrifice, feeding their children to the Moloch, you shouldn't. They make sacrifices wherever they want, to whichever gods they want, you should have one central temple and worship one god, so on and so on and so on. The sense the Bible gives as the chapters continue is that there's supposed to be something distinctive about the society the Israelites would build in the promised land. And that it was precisely by using the Mosaic law and eventually the biblical histories and works of the prophets as a guide that the Israelites could achieve this societal vision. Now, this sounds simple and intuitive, right? You should build a biblical society on the Bible. But in fact, it took about a thousand years for the West to make a serious attempt to put this vision into practice. It was actually specifically during the Renaissance and eventually the Reformation that European thinkers began to look directly and uniquely to the text of the Bible for guidance on how to live their lives and even how to construct their societies and arrange their politics. But if Westerners in the 16th and 17th centuries would look to the Bible unfiltered and uncut as they they saw it, as the authoritative source for private and public life, well, their first problem was that almost no one could read it in the original, whether the Hebrew and Aramaic of the Hebrew Bible or the Greek of the Christian Bible. Now, on a previous episode with Harvard historian Eric Nelson, we talked about how the eventual discovery by Christian Europe of ancient Hebrew as well as Jewish rabbinic literature ended up completely reshaping the history of politics in the West, particularly the rise of republics built on liberty. But what we haven't talked about in this podcast yet is exactly how Europeans began to learn Hebrew. How did this happen? Who was responsible for it? What did this process mean for the well-being of Jews and Jewish communities living in Europe? And what did this mean for the Christian majority? Now, at the center of all of these questions is really one extraordinary man, a man whom Rabbi Yisrael Lipschitz, author of the Tiferes Yisrael, one of the most famous rabbinic commentaries on the Mishnah in Jewish history, one of the seminal works of rabbinic literature, the earliest work of rabbinic literature, a man whom the Tiferes Yisrael called one of the righteous among the nations, a man by the name of Johannes Reuchlin. And today, 
I'd like to explore Johannes Reichling's story with one of the best historians I know who's mastered the intersection of the Renaissance, the Bible, the Reformation, and who literally wrote the best book on this person, on Johannes Reichling, that's out there. It's called Johannes Reichling and the Campaign to Destroy Jewish Books. I am so glad to welcome on Vanderbilt University's own Professor David Price. David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Rabbi Lamb. Thank you. Uh, It's so exciting to have you here. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. In order to tell the story you want to tell here, the story of how the West as we know it rediscovers the study of Hebrew, we first need to understand why people during the Renaissance cared so much about antiquity in general, and not just biblical antiquity in the first place. And to do that, I think we need to understand the opposition between scholasticism and humanism. So what are scholasticism and humanism, and what was at stake in the debate between the figures in those two camps? Oh, that's a big question. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So the scholastics were theologians um, exclusively. They used Aristotle and other philosophical sources, grounded especially in logic. They combined Aristotle and the Bible and Christian tradition as basis, as, as, the, as the foundations for their theology. And they were dominant at universities. Every single professor of theology was a scholastic. And, this, and the professors of theology had all the power at the universities. And whereas the humanists are, are just a completely new movement, comes pretty much out of nowhere. They do ultimately reject the authorities of the scholastics, but their idea really is to revive to recover knowledge from antiquity in a very broad way, scientific knowledge, artistic knowledge, uh, moral philosophical knowledge in a very broad way. And all, and even the language arts, and that's what we re- most frequently experience with the Renaissance is the visual Renaissance, which is grounded in ancient uh, aesthetics, and then the literary Renaissance, which is this the, the result of this wonderful revival of, of ancient culture. So the humanists were outsiders until this generation of Reuschlin and even into Luther's generation. Luther's the, we can say Luther is roughly speaking the generation after Reuschlin. Major overlap, maybe that'll come into our discussion. But the, so um, a couple of things are really important about the humanists. They developed a different form of Latin. So they wanted to recover Ciceronian Latin and their form of Latin was really an affront to medieval academic Latin. And they even made fun of the professors for their, um, for their Latin style. It's, it's, um, it's hard to appreciate these things in translation, but, but this is really quite a um, rejection of dominant culture when the humanists came on the scene and even brought in to play this new version of Latin, which then becomes dominant within a couple decades. And then as far as theology goes, something really profound, a couple of profound things happen. One, which is, I think, neglected a lot, is that the humanists, when they rejected scholastic, speculative theology, they put in its place, usually, moral philosophy and a moral approach to theology. And so from the Christian perspective, that would mean, what does Jesus tell us about how to live? So the simple moral philosophy of Jesus. In a scholastic system, 
You could never call Jesus a philosopher because he wasn't speculative. He doesn't use logic. It, it doesn't fit the categories of, of, the, of scholasticism. Whereas in this new humanist system, something revolutionary happens. Erasmus develops this concept of the philosophy of Christ. And Erasmus is a major thinker who's based in England. Uh, he's often in England. Yeah, we can say we can say that. But he's but he's also in Germany and he's also in the Low Countries. His his native country is is the Netherlands, and he's even in Italy sometimes. He's all over the place. And we're not talking about kind of like small potatoes, you know, debates between academics, right? Th these are figures, and, and particularly when you think about the role of the academy in kind of the Renaissance West. I mean, these are major public figures. Yeah, they're, they're, they are the celebrities of their day, especially Erasmus once he comes on the scene. Erasmus is a little bit younger than Reuschling, and we'll probably talk about their connection. But anyway, this idea of the moral philosophy, which is a complete rejection of the speculative philosophy that's focused on things like um, salvation or mechanisms of salvation, mechanisms of the sacraments. These kinds of things are not of interest. It's more just the simple teachings. And Erasmus will say things like anyone can understand the message of the Bible. And that's something no one really had said before. This is on the eve of Luther then um, with his uh, breakthroughs. Um, so that's the one thing that's really important. So, there, so this is a new approach to what theology is, and, and it makes the Bible more accessible if you look at the Bible only from the perspective of moral philosophy. And the other thing is what you mentioned. So the humanists had this idea that it's a valorization of ancient culture in every possible way. And they wanted, and everything that was great and good should be measured against a standard of antiquity. But in any event, they wanted to recover the languages of antiquity. So classical Latin is the language they recovered. And they wanted to recover Greek, which starts with Reuschling, actually, with his generation. And then from there, it's that the next step is, as you know, Hebrew from there. And it really goes in that sequence. And so that made, uh, that generated pretty strong, you know, the combination of biblical language and the fact that recovering Hebrew fit this paradigm of cultural recovery um, made Reuschling's uh, start, um, his uh, first Hebrew grammar book for Christians, a, a very significant work. And that actually brings us directly to, to Reuschling, because he would go on to become one of the most famous men in Europe, essentially, because of his devotion to the study of Hebrew. But that's not how his reputation starts. And you alluded to this just a second ago. So what made him well known at the outset? He's an interesting figure. He is a found he's a founding figure for the humanist movement. He's the first person to introduce to teach Greek, ancient Greek in Germany. For example, it's, it appears, um, and he has enjoys that um, reputation. He's one of the first uh, Germans to speak classical Latin. He got his first, he got his breakthrough job as a youngster to accompany the court of of Württemberg on a mission to Rome as a twenty year old because he could he was the only one who could speak classical Latin, and they needed it. So that that was his breakthrough. So that didn't make him famous. He really became famous for two reasons. One was uh, he, he became the best-known lawyer in Germany. He specialized in law, got a, got a doctorate in law. He worked for, mostly for, for the Duchy of Württemberg, but he also worked for the Palatinate, which is where Heidelberg is. And he high-powered lawyer rep, as a minister at the, in these governments. He represented these governments uh, in Rome. He represented these governments with the imperial court. And then from there, he became a judge 
the Holy Roman Empire had a legal system, developed a legal system in 1495 with very similar to what we have in the United States, circuit courts. They had a Supreme Court and they had a circuit court. And he was one of three judges uh, on the largest circuit court. And the, these courts heard cases of conflict between the territories in the Holy Roman Empire. There were over 2,000 separate sovereign territories in this so-called empire. The, the old witticism from Voltaire is the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. The last one is really tough for historians because, boy, it was not an empire with all these separate places. Anyway, he managed all that. Um, by, he was by far the most famous judge and lawyer in Germany, so well-connected, internationally connected. Um, and then the other thing was the Hebrew grammar book. When he published the Hebrew grammar book, uh, he had this huge prestige as this founder of Hebrew studies for all of Christianity in Europe. And in fact, um, something that's kind of easy not to notice, he's the first German to gain prestige internationally uh, in the humanist world. Before that, it was the dominance of the Italians. And it still is the dominance of the great Italian humanist writers and, and of course, the Renaissance painters. Italy was perceived as the unequal, they couldn't equal the cultural achievement of Italy. But he's the first one from the North that the Italians also celebrated as an innovator and was famous for his cultural com contributions. Erasmus is the second. So on the heels of Reuschling's prestige internationally comes Erasmus, who will be, become a famous uh, writer and thinker. And then Erasmus will create the first edition of the Christian New Testament in Greek. And this revolutionizes the Christian study of the New Testament. The Greek original text contradicted many of the theological implications of the Latin translation. So it's extremely problematic. And Reuschling had already done that for the Hebrew. He had already created access to the Hebrew Bible and definitely inspired Erasmus to do something comparable uh, for the New Testament. So I want to get to that seminal moment. How did Reuschling come to discover Hebrew? How did he learn it? And also, what role did Jews, including some quite prominent ones, play in his education? So, you know, when you think about people, think about history and life, you know, we all have these characteristics, traits, and interests. There's evidence that he was always intrigued by Hebrew, that he just was, even though he had almost no exposure to it. I totally empathize. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and let me tell you something that the sort of the bad side, the sad side of this story. For the first 10, 15 years of his serious study of Hebrew, one of his best sources for studying, the sources he could use to study what Judaism was and with a little bit of Hebrew in it, were anti-Jewish publications. This was an early source for him. So I, we can document, I can document all of that. And, and often composed by Jews who had apostatized. Almost always. Yeah. Almost always. At this, at this stage, almost always. And then 100 years later, Christians will become so expert in Hebrew that the anti-Jewish Christians will, will take on those roles. But, but in any event, so he seems to have been interested. And it probably was just the humanist paradigm that kept him interested. He had a huge disadvantage. The Jews had been expelled from Württemberg. There are very few Jews. He, he didn't meet many Jews for the first few decades of his life. 
as far as we can tell, but a few. And then, then there was this breakthrough moment. Uh, he was uh, in 1492 of all years. He discovers Hebrew. Sorry, uh, <laughs> it's a banger yeah. of a year. That's a big year. Uh, so that was the big discovery was Hebrew. But what happened was he was on a very um, complex political mission to the court, to the imperial court uh, for the Holy Roman Empire on the behalf of the Duke of Württemberg. And he handled the political business. But while he was there, he met one of the physicians of the emperor. It was Emperor Friedrich III at this time. And this physician was Jewish. And his name is Jakob Ben Yehiel Loans. It's hard to, to do a genealogy of him, but, but he seems to come from a prominent Italian Jewish family. And by the way, one of his nephews becomes the leader of Jews in Germany in the next generation. And this is Yossel of Rosheim. Right, Yossel of Rosheim, yes. Yossel of Rosheim, he, he even commemorated Reuschling after Reuschling's death referred to what Reuschling did as a miracle within a miracle. But in any event, um, so he met this physician, they hit it off, and, and he wrote some very beautiful things about this physician, descriptions of, of their friendship, they're brief, but also of how, how much he admired his learning and how much he enjoyed being in his presence. He wrote the, the, the beautiful lines he wrote about this rabbi. I don't think any Christian had ever written anything so um, respectful and so um, so heartfelt about a Jew ever. And he published it, this, this note. But anyway, he met this guy. So Loans was teaching him a little bit, as far as we can tell. Reuschen got a one-year leave of absence. He's 37 years old when he does this. And he got, he, nonetheless, he got a one-year leave of absence so that he could <laughs> stay at the court and devote himself to Hebrew. When the year was over, or actually we don't know, during the year at some point, Loans um, suggested that uh, Emperor Fre Frederick III present Reuschling with a Hebrew manuscript Bible. And it's a 13th century Hebrew manuscript Bible. It still exists. Uh, and this is just an amazing thing. I mean, it meant nothing probably to the emperor, just worth money or something. And it becomes this extremely important manuscript. Oh, yeah, it still is. But in any event, that was the moment he met Loans. And Loans was willing to teach him. But he, he has earlier experiences uh, with, with Hebrew. Um, so he was looking for this sort of thing, but there it was, and he took advantage of it. So that was 1492. Eight years later, I'm sorry, it would be six years later, um, in 1498, he was in um, Rome on another very complex diplomatic mission. This is my favorite. Yeah. So, so he was in Rome. Um, he actually had the honor in Rome of giving a formal Ciceronian style oration, it survives, uh, to uh, to the Pope, and that would have been Alexander the Sixth. So this would be before Pope Alexander the Sixth, fourteen ninety eight, in the Sistine Chapel. He gives this oration in the new, relatively <laughs> new Sistine Chapel. So it's really relatively new. By the way, on his earlier trip to Rome, he met Lorenzo the Magnificent of of Florence and got a tour of the palace and the Medici Palace in Florence, which is also brand new. And he met the future. Leo X, who was the son of Lorenzo the Magnificent. He, he knew the Pope, and the Pope ends up condemning him, but the Pope had supported him uh, significantly throughout his life. But anyway, he's in Rome, 1498. He gets a recommendation. He wants to study Hebrew. This is a great place to do this because Rome has 
one of the largest Jewish communities in the world um, at this moment. And it's also one of the oldest. Uh, obviously, uh, lots of Jewish, lots of Hebrew books in Rome. It was, so this is a great place. And it was um, Obadja Sforno, who is still known. One of the great, one of the genuinely greatest commentators on the history of the Bible to this day. Orthodox, I mean, I grew up studying the Sfarno, meaning Orthodox Jews throughout the world to this day will read his works on a weekly, if not daily basis. I mean, it's an amazing thing that he got to study with him. It's the standard part of the rabbinic Bibles that are printed. Yes. So, so it's just there. It's still alive. Shouts to my father-in-law has like a daily, uh, a daily exploration through the works of the Sforno as recently as last year. I mean, it's shouts to my father-in-law. <laughs> one of the things that Sforno, I, I don't, you're, you're the, you're the expert now, but one of the things that Sforno mentions and some, some people would say he emphasizes it somewhat is the con- the Jewish concept of people born outside of Judaism, getting their portion of salvation. Right. In, in, in rabbinic Hebrew, that's chasidei umot haulam, the righteous, I mean, the righteous among the nations, right? So the the concept that ends up becoming enshrined at Yad Vashem initially describes the idea that those who are not Jewish, but who are righteous people will receive an equal share in the world to come along with, with everybody else, including the greatest amongst the Jewish people themselves. And Obadjah Sforno definitely mentions this. And then I would say there's some emphasis on this. Yes, very much so. It was a very important concept to him. And Reuschling picks up on that. He's so amazed by this concept. This is the key. This is one of those uh, key things. Non, so an approach to salvation that's not exclusivist, that, that if you're outside of, of a theology, you're not going to find your way to salvation, is really problematic for interfaith relations. Reuschling really latched onto this. He mentions this concept a couple times and pr- probably picked up. Anyway, Sforno taught him. Um, there are a couple sources that describe uh, his study with Sforno. And um, one says that Sforno charged him a um, a florin a day or a golden a day for a lesson. And he had a lesson. Royston says he had a lesson every single day that he was there. So this would be, this is just a huge amount of money. It's not possible. I, I love your theory about what was actually happening there. It's great. Me, meaning they're, they're going out buying books, <laughs> right? Which, which any, any Jewish person, you know, who grew up in the community that I did. I mean, we all have that experience. Like you go to Israel for the year and you go to the bookstores or you go to Brooklyn and you go to the bookstores and you're just, you're like a kid in a candy store because you're just buying up as many books as you can. And Reichlin ends up doing this essentially, at least potentially with, with the Sfarno. <laughs> Absolutely. And Rome seems to have been a major source of Jew- of Hebrew books for Reuschling. There's this experience. He, he ends up with one of the largest Hebrew libraries in private hands for sure by the time he, he's uh, finished. Sforno was also distinctive because he knew Latin perfectly. This is fairly uncommon for a Jew of this generation. It, it starts to become a little more common. And then when you get into the 17th century, uh, someone like um, uh, Manasseh ben Israel definitely knows Hebrew extremely well, but, but it's pretty rare at, at this period. But he knew, he, he, he translated one of his own works into Hebrew. Into, into Latin. I'm sorry, sorry, translated one of his Hebrew works into Latin. Yeah, sorry. Right, his magnum, his philosophical magnum opus is the Ora Mim, the Light of the Nations, and he, tra- he translates it himself into Latin, which is remarkable. Exactly. So in any event, I think that he's the ideal teacher for Reuschen, and I think it's very possible that they work through some Jewish grammars and, and Jewish um, Hebrew lexicon. 
to and put it into some Latin. It probably helped him get started on the project because that's what he does. He goes back to Germany and he publishes the Breakthrough Hebrew Grammar Book in 1506, which is grounded strongly in, in Jewish sources. But it's just, but it's all in Latin um, and, and makes Hebrew accessible to to a Christian student for the first time. And, it, and, and it's a complete biblical lexicon. It runs, I can't remember, but it's about five or 600 pages. It's based on the Sefer HaShoshim. And then there's a very small uh, grammar that goes with this massive lexicon. And I think that works pretty well. And I think, you know, with a Latin translation of the, of the Hebrew Bible, you get this massive Hebrew lexicon in a little, a, a, in a, a small grammar. I think it's enough to get started with studying the Bible for a Christian at the time. So, so that's what he provides. And, and then it just takes off. By the 1520s, Hebrew becomes an ob- obligatory co- part of the curriculum. Uh, mo- any ser- every serious university is going to offer Hebrew studies by the time you get to the end of the 1520s, for sure. So Hebrew, interest in Hebrew is sweeping Europe and it's impacting people's uh, spiritual lives. It's impacting the collective decisions about how to arrange politics and government. And and Hebrew ends up certainly in the years after Reuchlin as well. And it, it takes off particularly in England eventually. The, so interest in Hebrew ends up becoming massively important. And this actually leads to the the next question I wanted to ask you, which is we really should tackle the seminal event in Reuchlin's life. And in fact, a, a central and yet deeply underappreciated event in the history of the West, I think. And that is the campaign to destroy Jewish books. And in order to do this, we need to introduce another character, uh, Johannes Pfefferkorn. And here, I got to tell you, <laughs> just studying this topic as an Orthodox Jew, I came away believing that Pfefferkorn is actually one of the most underrated villains in like, <laughs> all, in like all of Jewish history. Like we're talking, like if we're talking post-biblical history, he's got to be on the Mount Rushmore of villains. So so who was Johannes Pfefferkorn? What was his life's mission? And how did this bring him into contact with Reuchlin? Okay, so Pfefferkorn... Uh, uh, converted to Christianity right around 1505. His his uncle is a rabbi, and uh, he's Jewish. He's he's not only one of the most sophisticated villains in the history of Judaism. He's also very controversial, and so a lot of older Jewish, especially Jewish scholars, uh, characterized Pfefferkorn as as ignorant. Um, but that's just not true, in my humble opinion. Reuchlin himself decries decries him as as an ignoramus, but that's just part of the uh, fierce polemic against Pfefferkorn and all of his supporters. Pfefferkorn seems to have been a well. He, he published quite a few works against Jews. He was um, starting in 1507. His first publication is a pamphlet against Jews in 1507. What his he did a series of pamphlets. The first one's probably a missionary, partly a missionary pamphlet, and it seems to reflect some of his missionary sermons that he's probably giving. And this is what was done in this period. Jews were forced to attend 
sermons given by Christians to try to convert them. They were this was these were obligatory in various places, not everywhere, but and he was doing this even though he wasn't a priest. He was never a Christian priest, but he was still doing the, these things uh, somewhat. And and then he published these published these pamphlets that were extraordinarily successful in high German, low German, Latin, the same pamphlet in three different forms, several of them, uh, print reprinted frequently. Um, and he used a, a, a very effective technique of quoting evidence against the Jews in Hebrew. Then he transliterated the Hebrew. So, so typeset Hebrew, it's terrible typesetting. And then, uh, and that's one of the reasons people say he was ignorant, but I don't think the typesetting is, his, is because of him. Then transliterated, and then with a German or a Latin translation of this, all the evidence he presented. His goal after around 1507 was no longer to convert the Jews. It was to eradicate Judaism. And so he basically was arguing along the lines of, of the people who campaigned for banishments of Jews. This, this period is really just about the absolute low point of Jewish life in Europe, when Pfeffer coins on the scene. Jews have been banished from most places in Europe. And so Pfeffer coins tapping into that. And so why, you know, presenting all these reasons in, in these pamphlets, why Jews should be expelled from every Christian territory. And among the things that he mentions are the Jews are blasphemous and that, that contemporary Judaism is a heresy. So that this, this very strange idea that rabbinic Judaism is a heresy, uh, a heretical departure from biblical Judaism. Christianity had always said Judaism is not a heresy. It's just a different thing. It's just a different thing. But now there's this argument that actually they are. They are Jewish heretics nowadays because they're following the Talmud, not the Bible. And if they're heretics, then the punishment for that is quite severe. It is severe. But basically the goal is expulsion. And then Pfefferkorn, he seems to have been a businessman before he converted. We have one really important piece of evidence where he says the Jewish communities had used him on diplomatic missions to various Christian governments. This is very interesting, and I find it very plausible because he is so politically adept, and he has audiences with the emperor. So we're dealing with someone who's very sophisticated, very determined, never gives up, goes to his grave, still still fighting this fight. But I do want to back up and because... The way I'm presenting this, I think, is distorting the history a little bit. It wasn't just Pfefferkorn. He's joined by other people. The main forces are the Inquisitor General of Germany, who is a guy named Jakob van Hochstraten in Cologne. Hochstraten also um, continues on this cause, trying to ex destroy all Jewish books. The idea about, the, by the way, the book problem here, I'm sorry, I'm not too organized right now. <laughs> no, no, let's get to it. Meaning these folks, Pfefferkorn, Hoogstraten, they eventually settle on this program to destroy all Jewish books. Now, why do they come to this idea? How do they hit on this? Well, they come to this idea because they can argue that the books are blasphemous. And blasphemy is actionable under imperial law, and the emperor has authority to enforce imperial law. This is the problem with the Holy Roman Empire, neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. The emperor did not have the authority just to expel Jews from every territory in the Holy Roman Empire. Could never have done this in one 
uh, action. It was that was impossible. So Spain, France, England, they, the Jews were thrown out uh, from the whole country, Portugal, all at once. But not that wasn't possible in the Holy Roman Empire. I had to go territory by territory, and there had been huge success in this territory by territory anti-Jewish campaign for about 100 years. But there still were very significant Jewish communities surviving for various reasons. So the emperor didn't have the authority, but he did have the authority to um, enforce blasphemy laws. And that's what that was the strategy. So by getting rid of all the Jewish books, with the exception of the Hebrew Bible, it would be impossible to practice Judaism. That would end Judaism. That, that over Very quickly, um, it would be impossible for Jews then to practice their faith. And in almost like cartoonishly villainous fashion, Pfefferkorn and Hoogstraten are writing about this explicitly. They're like, if we just get all these books and destroy them, Judaism will be gone by itself. Like we, they'll, they'll destroy themselves, it, which is such an unbelievable thing to... So how does this campaign proceed and how do they come into contact w- with Reuchlin? What role does Reuchlin play in this whole story? Well, okay, so Reuchlin, so so they get the ma- the imperial mandate. Maximilian is a terrible anti-Jewish emperor. He's he probably has the worst record. He's the only emperor in history who endorsed blood libel. Uh, um, all the other emperors rejected any sort of claim that Jews had um, kidnapped and executed Christian children for their rituals. They, it's like the QAnon of the ancient world. <laughs> the QAnon, but it's a very sad QAnon. Um, but, but with this exception of Maximilian, all other emperors suppressed those prosecutions. But at any rate, so, th- so the emperor, he agreed with them, and he issued a mandate, very, a very complex political history to implement the mandate, because it was going to have to be implemented in every place. And the Archbishop of Mainz took over responsibility for supervising the implementation of this. The, um, As I said, the Inquisitor General of Germany in Cologne also worked with this. And then Pfefferkorn went from place to place and implemented it. And they did successfully implement it. All the books, for example, in Frankfurt uh, on mine were confiscated. We can talk about what happened to them in a second. So I, the, the campaign was complex and there were legal challenges. Some of the localities did not want their Jewish communities to be harassed like this. And the books were perceived as having tremendous value. And they saw this as an inappropriate seizure of property and also an impingement on their authority over the Jewish community. That's what the city council of Frankfurt initially argued. So they com- they filed complaints to the emperor. The Jewish community filed complaints to the emperor, to the Supreme Court of the Holy Roman Empire, to the Archbishop of Mainz. And the Jewish community in Frankfurt managed to slow down the confiscation because the Archbishop of Mainz agreed with them. Very, We don't know why exactly. And initially stopped the confiscation, but it was then resumed and all the books were confiscated. Anyway, uh, one other issue, a Maximilian had to suspend the campaign because his strongest mili- one of his strongest military supporters, the Duke of Braunschweig, was heavily indebted to the um, Frankfurt Jewish community. And they, they had nothing to do with the book controversy. The, the people in the community, the, the, the creditors, they had to sell off the collateral. And so part of the deal was don't sell the collateral 
uh, give this guy an extension on on this huge loan, and we'll suspend, but but not end the book controversy. So it was in limbo for about a couple of months. But the emperor then decided that he wanted four universities and three individuals to evaluate the legality of, of the mandate to confiscate and destroy all Jewish books except the um, Bible. That's where Royston comes in. Everyone said, this is the best idea ever. But what the universities did is just an absolute shame. And then the three individuals uh, were, one was a former Jew, uh, a guy named Victor of Carbon. Another one was the Inquisitor General of Germany who's already involved in this. And the third one was Reuschling, the most famous, he- the only only Christian, uh, born Christian, who knew Hebrew and the most and famous because of the, of the Hebrew grammar, and, and because he was the greatest judge, he's also he's, he's and this is where we have to remember his background as this great legal scholar. So Royce not only rejected the legality of this, he wrote a fifty-page legal analysis of all of its faults, and also used um, theological arguments. So, so a lot of it is legal argument on the basis of church law, arguing on the basis of imperial law, and a lot of it is theological, grounded in the in the Bible even, um, and then some of it is just um, pretty straightforward humanism going, that we need to preserve the ability to go back to the sources of knowledge, and this would destroy significant sources of knowledge. But when he's arguing on the basis of imperial law and, and ecclesiastical law, um, he's, he is, he's creating strong arguments defending Jewish rights, and he even calls Jews, he labels Jews, fellow citizens of the empire. Right, concives. Exactly. So what is Reichling's attitude towards Jews and Judaism as it develops over the course of his career and kind of culminates in, in this period where he essentially is the only person standing, the only person of significance standing, in, and certainly the only Christian, really, at this point, standing in the way of the destruction of Judaism and the Holy Roman Empire? Does he develop maybe even some respect and admiration for Jews in the Jewish tradition? It's very interesting. uh, Now, we can go through the whole corpus of his writings. We can find a few places where he makes it pretty clear that, that in his opinion, Christianity um, is the better revelation. (laughs) Right. Checks out. He's a Christian theologian. (laughs) But he doesn't doesn't ever uh, advocate proselytizing Jews. But what's more distinctive, of course, are his favorable portrayals of Jews and Judaism. And he portrays Judaism as a a religion with integrity. Um, In one of his works from 1513, so so he's attacked. So he publishes his defense of Judaism. This is also astonishing. He published it. He published it in German, so anyone can read it. Famously friendly language to Jews and the Jewish people. Uh, yeah, so he does that. He ends up the most um, not- he's the most infamous person of the 1510s until until Luther comes on the scene. Um, he's attacked from all courts, but he but he writes these things about Jews at this time. Some of them are brief, but but for in one case he says, um, "I have shocked everyone by saying the Jews are our fellow citizens." As Conquiwe is so quoting. But I want you. I want you to completely lose control. I want your guts to burst, because I am going to tell you the Jews are our brothers. 
and he publishes this sort of thing. Um, and that immediately becomes an article of heresy. He's charged with heresy for all this stuff. So you get some pretty interesting descriptions of Jews. There's a very famous scholar named Max Brod, B-R-O-D. He's, he was famous as the literary executor of Kafka. Yeah. So he's Kafka's friend, and he's the one who saved Kafka's manuscripts from the fires because... Right. Kafka says, burn everything as soon as I die, and Max Brod is like, actually. <laughs> yeah. So we owe Max Brod a lot. And Max Brod was a was a really gifted writer, um, very, a stylist, you'd say. And he wrote a biography of Reuschling because he admired him. And Max Brod says about Reuschling, about one of Reuschling's works, it's called um, On the Art of the Kabbalah, De Arte Kabbalistica. He published in 1517. And Brod said no one had ever published anything as uh, appreciative of Judaism or as favorable about Judaism as this work, this late work. What he's referring to is that Reuschling, in this work, in this work, Reuschling is quoting figures from the Jewish tradition. He's, he's quoting things from the Talmud um, and other sources, which are really very beautiful. Um, so he, he, at one point he quotes, I, I think it's David Kimshi, he quotes, and Kimshi says something like, if you follow the way of the Lord and lead a righteous life, you, you will be blessed or something like that. And all these sorts of lovely things. And Reuschling is presenting this to Christian. He, he gives it in Hebrew, and then he gives it in translation, in this case, Latin translation. And so he's really giving, in an indirect way, he, in that work, he, he creates a very positive portrayal of Judaism. Yeah, anyway, so so it's a pretty significant shift. And then also, what he does in the defense of Judaism, in, when he's asked to recommend on the legality of the confiscation, he says, if they are blasphemous, it's legal to do this. And so then what he does, he says, we have to check the evidence. We have to go through the evidence. So he goes through all the ev- he goes through some of the evidence that Pfefferkorn and others have presented about blasphemy. And these are things that are pretty well known, I believe, in the, um, for example, there's a, in the Amidah, uh, the central Jewish prayer, there's, it's called the Birkat HaMinim. Um, and, the, and that was construed as being against Christians. Um, and, and, so, and Reuschling goes through that word for word, and he shows that there's nothing that's specifically Christian here. He has a very, so he goes through the, the specific arguments against Jews. This is very valuable for the portrayal of Jews and, 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 prove, and proves um, to his satisfaction um, that, this is, this is, that the Jews are not anti-Christian. Um, the other one that's really significant, this plays a huge role in the history of, of Christian anti-Semitism, is the Aleinu prayer. Recited to this day. Yeah. So, and, and a lot of congregations skip over some of the verses in the Aleinu. So, the, the, the verses that will say that God has created us unlike um, the uh, people of the nations, the people of the lands, the nations of the land. The nations of the land, yeah. And then, it, and then it goes on to say, they, blah, 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 they who worship emptiness and vanity. Right, Hevel Varik, which is a biblical phrase, right? Yeah, right. So that was considered uh, an affront to Christianity, right? Um, and Reuschling uh, argues it's not, and he, and he gives reasons. And this is so impressive because he's the only one who knows Hebrew among these Christians. Which is the, be- the best argument that he, one of the, the, the most fun arguments that he makes in this kind of defense of Jewish literature and Jews, is he says, listen, he's like, I have tried forever 
to figure out how to read the Talmud. And unfortunately, I haven't achieved the necessary proficiency. So, but I'm Reuchlin. I'm the most expert person in Hebrew in all of Europe. So if I can't do it, then certainly you can't do it. And so how could you claim to know that this is a, sort of a heretical work if you have no idea what you're talking about? I can't even figure it, which is such a such an amusing but also effective argument. Yeah. Right. He's dogged. And this kind of cons- this essentially takes up the rest of his life. And in the end, the, the Reuchlin affair, as you document in the book, ends in a little bit of an ambiguous stalemate because he ends up getting sort of vindicated. But the pope at the le- in the 11th hour ends up voiding the committee that had exonerated him. And there ends up being this very, very years long ambiguity. And then and then comes Luther onto the scene and the Reformation in some ways steals the thunder of the Reuchlin affair, but in other ways kind of takes the things at stake in the Reuchlin affair and amplifies them, namely humanism, reading the Bible in a way that that kind of does an, an end run around the, the traditional uh, Latin Vulgate and its status within medieval Christendom. But where this brings us, I think, in this conversation is to kind of what I see is as two alternative paths, right? When it comes to European Christians' relationships with the Jewish people, I kind of see Reuchlin as an alternative to what we encounter in figures like Erasmus, whom, whom you mentioned earlier, and more significantly, perhaps, in Martin Luther, a younger contemporary of Reuchlin's, who begins as, and in many ways remains, as an admirer of Reuchlin. So what's the path that leaders like Luther take, and how does that impact the future of Europe? Well, Luther is one of the most violent anti-Jewish writers in history. And it's a horrible experience to read Luther's anti-Jewish works. One quote is, just to paraphrase, is, we should burn down all the synagogues just so God can see that we are good Christians, something like that. It's just terrible stuff. It's horrible. So not all Christians, not all Lutherans, even there was an immediate reaction against Luther's anti-Jewish writings, but there there was also an immediate embrace of them. So you have a, you have a profound bifurcation in the in the Christian world, and Luther's works and reemerge in the anti-Semitism of the late 19th century. They're they're used by the Nazis. One scholar said before the Holocaust. One scholar said that Luther's works are so dangerous because any anti-Semite can point to them triumphantly. This great authority for Christian culture and cultural history, as someone who advocated a violent end to Judaism. So, so the Luther story is, is significant. But th- I think the part of the problem is this. Knowledge of Judaism, knowledge of Hebrew, it's not a formula that leads to philo-Semitism. It, right, love of Jews. It doesn't lead to, to favorable portrayals of Jews in a mathematical progression or formula. It just doesn't. But it can. So it's a so it can go both it can go different ways and so in this period most of the anti-Jewish writers using Hebrew are former Jews but soon it will be Christians who have have profound knowledge of of Hebrew and uh, pretty good knowledge of the Talmud in some cases the Christians will acquire this and so you get different works um, there's a very there's a famous work published in 1700. Uh, it's called Judaism Revealed um, by a guy named Johann Christian 
Eisenmenger. It's a, it's a terrible, it's a Christian who's writing, who has absorbed the Jewish tradition and just used it to create a massive anti-Semitic uh, source book, as it were. It was so terrible that it got suppressed by Christians because they didn't want anti-Jewish rioting, but it finally comes through. So anyway, so you have this tradition, but the other one is Royston's tradition, and some of his students wrote other wrote defenses of Judaism. And a lot of Christians who uh, studied Judaism did become empathetic to Jewish interests. But there are other things that pl also play a huge role. Um, by the time we get to the end of the 16th century, so we have, we have this, what's really important about Reuschling is that he demonstrated that Judaism was not a destructive social presence. So that there was no obligation for a Christian to end legal toleration of Judaism, because the Jews are not dangerous, they're not, and they're not blasphemous. This is extremely valuable. So, so any ruler who wanted to, to tolerate Jews had some arguments. Do you understand what I'm saying? That, they, that they're not, we're not a, we shouldn't expel them because they're not blasphemous, they're not a threat to us. When we get to the end of the 16th century, some places want to readmit Jews. Major reasons is almost certainly um, economic and fiscal a perception that the presence of a Jewish community is, might uh, help promote trade relations and might make might um, improve the uh, tax revenues of a place. So there's perceptions like that, but that, that is completely dependent on a benign portrayal of Jews because you could not introduce those kinds of policies if you believe that Jews are blasphemous or, or, or murdering Christian Jews. So this is extremely important what he's done. And then what happens in some places, which is phenomenal and will drive the improvement in Jewish conditions, is in places like Amsterdam. Amsterdam in the um, 17th century just becomes so extremely significant, readmits Jews with in a very liberal way, and it flourishes, and there are really meaningful Christian-Jewish relations, and it's a combination, and these Christian-Jewish relations are grounded in biblical interests and in religious interests, and Christians, Christians start to get very interested in more liberal definitions of what Christianity is. They start to open up. Other Christians who get, start to support Jewish life from a more conservative Christian position, namely millennialism, and they believe that, that it's benign to support Jews. But before the second coming of Christ, the Jews will convert. But we, and we, don't, have to we don't necessarily have to proselytize, but that there, there will be a conversion uh, as a prelude to, to the Messiah coming a second time. With Reuschling, we're looking at the survival. We're not, you know, what he accomplishes is, a, he, his is a contribution to the survival of, the, of Judaism in Germany um, when it was really very close to disappearing. And so to me, the, what, I, what you kind of take away from this, which is so fascinating, when you kind of put together all of these trends that you're talking about and throw them in the, in the pot, where you get, and just to return to Luther to a moment, is you have a figure who on the one hand is going far beyond some of the kind of theological anti-Judaism that you'll find in Christianity that, that, you know, in some ways is just what you would expect from a universalistic, you know, and it's kind of a universalistic, exclusivistic faith that's trying to deal with its relationship to Judaism. So I don't even find it that, that difficult to confront, but Luther's going far beyond that. And he's advocating like true physical violence against Jews. 
which is horrifying and has and has effects, uh, deep effects later on in, in Western history. At the same time, Luther is kicking off this engagement with the Bible that, as we, you know, as we talked about actually in a previous episode of Good Faith Effort, leads to the rise of Christian Hebraism, this fascinating embrace of an interest in Jewish rabbinic texts and and becomes kind of the primary conduit by which traditional Jewish wisdom makes its way to such critical projects as the founding of the American Republic. So it, it's, it's a really fascinating dichotomy to think through. And, 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 you know, you could kind of sum it up as it was the, the worst of times and the best of times. But I'm interested now kind of in the end, how should we assess Reuchlin's legacy? And, and what's the way for the West or maybe America in particular, which has so much of the Hebraic project at its roots? How do we learn from Reuchlin? If we're taking away one thing, what are we taking away? Not even as like an interfaith question, right? As, as like an American kind of sociocultural societal political question right yeah if you read the if you read the history history from our, from our perspective i think one thing that stands out is his respect for due process of the law he's very earnest in claiming he doesn't want the jews to suffer a, a mis, uh, any sort of un, injustice they, sh- they shouldn't get any advantages and they shouldn't suffer any disadvantages. They need to be tried. This this question needs to be settled under the law. And so this is really powerful, the way he, he uses the law um, when you look closely at this history. The other thing I take personally away from this is, I think, this is a man who had accomplished so much in his life. It's just astonishing. He comes from common background. And it astonishes, accomplishes so much. He's so politically well-connected. He's so culturally well-connected. And he is willing to use all of his prestige and all of his cachet for this issue that is not going to help, is not going to benefit him in any way. As you, as you pointed out, the end of his life is just consumed by handling the, this controversy. It's really um, is, is all consuming for sure. But this was someone with the, this is someone who was able, he was willing to expend all of his political capital for on, on this. And he thought he would get a lot of support because of his tremendous connections. And he did. He did. He's probably the only person who could have pulled this off because of his knowledge of the law and his amazing connections. So many people supported him who were not favorable to Jews. Erasmus is a good example. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So on the one hand, respect for due process and, uh, and the law is, is extremely significant here. By, by the way, the, the conflict between Erasmus as this kind of very anti-Jewish supporter of Reuchlin and Pfefferkorn as this kind of cartoonish anti-Jewish opponent of Reuchlin, there's this moment, and it's an epigram that you quote in one of the chapters of the book, that I I didn't know whether to laugh or cry at it, and I, and I think I did both, which was Erasmus has this incredible burn of Pfefferkorn where he says Pfefferkorn seems to be half a Jew, but he's proven by his actions that he's actually a Jew and a half, which is this deeply anti-Semitic insult to a guy who himself is this arch villain of the Jewish people. Like, I kind of didn't know. It's it's kind of like the two worst people in the world arguing with each other. It was really, it's really something. <laughs> Yeah, he's bl- he's he's blaming Pfefferkorn for the turmoil in Christianity. Right, exactly. He's a classic Jews. <laughs> the 
He's blaming Peppercorn for all the problems. And, and Christianity was in tremendous turmoil over the Reuschling affair. And Luther emerges at the beginning of the Luther movement comes in part, is connected in, in, uh, to a degree to this turmoil. Not, but anyway, so, that, so not many people are willing to risk everything to defend. I mean, obviously he cared about Jewish studies, but, but this, is, this is an amazing effort. All, all of his opponents said that the Jews were, were bribing him to do this, which is just crazy. Uh, and, 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 and nobody even took that seriously. It was just sort of cheap shot. And I love that idea. He could have led this unbelievably successful, well-remunerated and, and celebrated life had he not stood on principle. And yet that was precisely yeah. what he did. Absolutely beautiful. Um, this is This is really one of, I think, the most underrated stories and underappreciated stories in Jewish history, in Western history, in the history of the Bible, the reception of Hebrew, it's it's truly amazing. So, so with la- very, very, very last question, just plugs, right? What what's the next cool thing that you're working on? Uh, well, I just I just finished a book on art and the um, Christian Bible in this period, and now I'm getting close to finishing a book on. It's called Listening to Jewish Voices, and it's on the impact of Jewish writers on the discourse of religious toleration in this period. So it's going to deal with people, it's dealing with people like Manasseh ben Israel and Leon Modena. I'm hereby officially pre-ordering this book. <laughs> <laughs> these, two, these two are the first to write, uh, they're obviously rabbis, um, they wrote books for, for Christian readers. And they're deeply influential within the Jewish tradition as well, which is fascinating. You know, it is, it's true. But it's so fun. I got real. I got really interested in this when I read something by Leon Modena's grandson, who said that his grandfather was more famous among the Christians than among the Jews. Right. <laughs> this is and and I read this and I think I think there was a little bit of remorse in that. You know, this is you know at the time and um, and I'm thinking. But that's and that's the point. This is so the Jewish world's not even aware of the importance of reaching out to the Christian world. But what I'm discovering as I as I do research on this is it's not it's not just Jews trying to inform a Christian outlook. It's actually a kind of it, it's really a symbiosis. Christians are commissioning works from Jews to, um, to describe Judaism uh, in an authentic way. And and then they're and Christians are promoting these works by Jews. For example, Leon Modena wrote uh, the history of the Jewish rituals of today. Just a rough translation in Italian. He wrote it for Christians. A English embassy asked him to write this. A French scholar, Christian scholar, is the first person to publish it, and uh, it ends up getting translated into most of the European languages by Christians. And it, and it ends up getting printed about 40 times or so. Only one of the 40 printings is by a Jew. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. But, but anyway, so it's a, it's a real, and, and then of course, um, Manasseh ben Israel uh, worked so closely with Christian colleagues and, and then was able to, um, he becomes the most famous Jew uh, in Europe by far. Um, and then he's he's invited to come to England by Oliver Cromwell uh, to try to provide support for a program to readmit Jews to England. And then he's part of this great effort to readmit 
Jews to England. And it, it's a huge um, contribution from, uh, on the part of Jews to a discourse of religious toleration. But it's also, it, it's really symbiotic. The, it's, it's kind of a hybrid discourse, Christian-Jewish discourse, ultimately, uh, because of the interactions be, uh, among the Christians who are supporting this um, and, the, and the great Jewish writers who are really stepping forward for the first time is something that we might think of as public intellectuals in a Christian world. All of a sudden, Christians are listening to Jews. That hadn't really happened. You know, it, you, know you had things like everybody's using Rashi as a source for, the Christians are using Rashi just for basic information. Um, by the way, Luther would hated Rashi. Just you know, but something so something like that. But but still, um, most Christians are 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 taking advantage of, of of Jewish knowledge. This project sounds absolutely fascinating, game changing, and and in the meantime, I want to encourage everyone to check out your book on Reichling, which is called Johannes Reichling and the Campaign to Destroy Jewish Books. It's fabulous. Uh, it, it's truly, truly fascinating. Every page has something, has some interesting nugget on it. And this is, uh, this is really, really exciting. David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ari. It's really nice to meet you. Take care. Bye-bye. Look, Western civilization is a complicated thing. It's hard to do it justice with broad brushstrokes. But if I may... Really, all that's best in the West can be found in the Reichling story. The power of Hebrew wisdom and literature, the brotherhood born of particularism and difference that Reichling admired in the concept of the righteous Gentile that so animated his Jewish teacher and study partner in Rome, Rabbi Ovadius Svarno, the role of political toleration in building a strong society, and the importance of maintaining the courage of your convictions, of bravely standing for freedom and virtue even when doing so is difficult the heroism of Reichlin and the villainy of folks like Pfefferkorn and Hoogstraten is so criminally underappreciated and understudied, but I hope that through this episode, you've been able to see how critical this moment in history is for building a bright future for American society and the West at large rooted in our Hebraic political heritage and built on the liberty and virtue for which we aspire anew in every generation. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.